So I have a challenging question for you. Can a Christian ever long for death? Have you ever wondered about that? Stay tuned. We're going to get into that this episode. Slava Isusu Christ, to glory to Jesus Christ. This is your host, Christopher, with the Ukrainian Fire Chaplain Show. If you haven't already, check out our website, www.theufcshow.com. Learn a little bit more about us, some of the platforms that we're on, and ways that you could support us if you were interested. So today's episode, we're going to be looking at the question of the Christian's desire for death. And it is very special because it touches on aspects of what we are getting into in our Church Fathers series that is running simultaneously with this. So stay tuned. In this episode, we're going to kind of follow along one of the themes that I talked about in our covering the life and tragedy and uh, redemption, so to speak, of a dear friend named Mike Staley. So far, what I'm going to be focused on in this episode is to follow up on the question of the Christian's desire to die, or is there an ability for a Christian to desire to die. This is a hot and button topic. And I think a lot of it comes back to how you really want to define the word die, how you really want to define the word desire, what your object and goal is. Are there unchristian ways that Christians can desire to die? I think there are. I think that us seeking death as a rejection of the cross, us seeking death as a rejection of our suffering, our rejection of God's will for our life, our rejection of the struggles that we are bound to, I think that absolutely is a problem. However, is there a way that a Christian can desire to see God? And in this particular episode, I'm going to be looking at a first century Christian whose writings survive us and who gives us an amazing insight to the life of the early church at the turn of the century as many Christians were dying for Jesus Christ, uh, being executed, being uh, fed to wild beasts, being martyred, being burnt alive. There are so many beautiful witnesses uh, to our Lord in the first century. And I, I think one in particular shed some, some light on a topic that we talked about with Mike. And so I'm going to get into it. Who am I talking about? Ignatius of Antioch, right? If you remember, I mentioned the name Ignatius of Antioch as one of those kind of radical witnesses to the question of death and the longing for death and how Christians should understand uh, our desire for union of, with God our desire and attachment to the things of the world. So who was Bishop? Uh, who was Ignatius of Antioch? Well, I just told you. He was a bishop. He was the third bishop of Antioch. He succeeded governing the church there after Peter went on his journeys and eventually went to Rome. Uh, if we remember Antioch, which is modern-day Turkey, is where, uh, according to Acts 11.26, where the Jesus followers were first called Christians. And... This place where Ignatius uh, governed the church is where the mystical body of Christians, the church, was first called Catholic. Now, um, 
There's a lot of later treatments about church authority and influence. And if you want to get into my study series on the church fathers, which I'm trying to build some of your interest in that I've got in production, we get into a lot of that. Um, there are a number of aspects of his writings that have survived. There are disputes about which ones were authentic, which ones weren't, how we discern. And there even is the bigger question of why do we even care to listen to him? He's not the Bible and the Word of God. Well, you know, I have just played the transcripts in an earlier episode of the dispatch traffic for 9-11. Are those audio tapes the inspired Word of God? No. Nobody would think such a thing. Are they accurate, credible history into the leadership and experiences of New Yorkers? Absolutely they are. And so I think when it comes to quasi or religious figures, such as Ignatius of Antioch, who was a bishop and a leader of the Christian church, a lot of people will typically sit back and say, well, if it's not the inspired word of God, then therefore it's irrelevant and it can't be good history that's relevant to us, that can't inform us and guide us today. And I think there's uh, a complete and profound misunderstanding and mistake when we say that. There are um, beautiful writings from the leaders of the first centuries of the church who were, in a paraphrase, the Billy Grahams. They were the pastors, the shepherds. They were the overseers. They were the Christian leaders uh, and, and father figures guiding other Christians to know Christ and guiding strangers and pagans and Jews and people of all countries and, and previous beliefs to know Jesus Christ. They are a witness to the soundness and the consistency of the gospel during this time period. And I think it's important that we take a look at them. We know a lot from this time period. And there is a, a, a beautiful account to some of their martyrdoms. With Ignatius in particular, one of the unique things that's related to this in the question of no easy answers, and the question of struggles and, and dealing with the pains of life, is that Ignatius uh, is a miraculous witness to a healthy, proper Christian attitude towards death. And in the series that I have going on, we will spend, you know, the better part of uh, 15 to 20 minutes or more per, per letter of his digging through them. Uh, so far, I've got a, uh, a four extended part series produced on Ignatius of Antioch that will be coming out soon. And there are numerous levels of detail that I'll get into that I'm not going to get into here in a, in a quick little podcast. The epistle that I'm looking at today is his epistle to the Romans or to the Church of Rome, uh, which is where Ignatius was on a travel from Syria to Rome to eventually be uh, executed for being a Christian and confessing his faith in Christ and refusing to pitch incense to the false god of Caesar. Uh, in particular, here, I'm going to be reading from uh, Philip Schaff's translation, which is out of copyright, um, chapters 5 and following. Just read a couple of excerpts, and then I'll, I'll dig into this a little bit to give you a taste of some of the beautiful things that we can understand about Christianity as a perspective unique to the great tragedy that death and suffering and the end of human life is. 
Quote, From Syria even unto Rome I will fight with wild beasts, both by land and sea, by night and day, being bound to ten leopards, I mean a band of soldiers, the ten leopards being his referral to the, to the Roman prison guards that were holding him in custody, who even when they receive benefits show themselves all the worse, but I am the more instructed by their injuries to act as a disciple of Christ. Yet I am not thereby justified in Christ. May I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me, and I pray that they may be found eager to rush upon me, which also I will entice to devour me speedily and not deal with me as some whom out of fear they, the beasts have not even touched. But if they be unwilling to attack me, I will compel them to do so. Forgive me in this. I know what is for my benefit. Now I begin to be a disciple. And he is saying now he begins to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let fire and cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, the cutting off of members, the shatterings of the whole body, and all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. And in the next chapter, there's this beautiful line that I said, I'm not for bumper sticker philosophies, but if you want to sum up Ignatius's conception of what it meant to him to be a Christian, it is the single sentence, permit me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. Now, the word passion there is not uh, le passion, you know, the passion that often we think of with carnal desires for, you know, between men and women. That is the passion and the suffering and the crucifixion of Christ that he wished to be an imitator of. There is such profound desire for union. It, it, is, it is not a desire for the rejection of the cross. It is, not a, it is not a contempt of the goodness of creation. It is not a contempt of the amazing, beautiful gift that life is for us. Whether you're an atheist or whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a frog worshiper, most people who have their heads out of the sand or their you-know-whats can see there are so many beautiful aspects to the world that we live in. Sometimes people can be terrible, horrible human beings. And it's very difficult for those of us who work particularly in public safety or in healthcare to avoid getting jaded at the evil that we see, at the poor choices that we see. It becomes very easy for us to isolate ourselves. Indeed, it's more difficult to want to be around other people today. The past few years of isolation and the, the agitations and the anger in society for various reasons, some good, that is some just reasons for being angry, and sometimes excessive and unjust reasons for being angry. But when you look here, there is not a contempt for the gift of life. There is not a contempt for the world that we live in as if it's something hateful and terrible and bad and I just have to escape it. In Ignatius, he has a reason for his desire to be martyred for Jesus Christ. Uh, in chapter 7, he continues on this, and he says, um, Do not speak of Jesus Christ, and yet set your desires on the world. Let not envy find a place among you, nor even should I, when along with you, exhort you to it, be persuaded to listen to me, but rather give credit to the things I write you now, which is that my love of God has been crucified 
and there is um, water within me that lives and speaks, saying, Come to the Father. I have no delight in the food of this life, nor in the pleasures. I desire the bread of God, the heavenly bread, the bread of life, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, who became afterwards the son of David and Abraham. I desire the drink of God, which is incorruptible love and eternal life. And so for him, there's not a contempt for God's will. Um, although it comes across strikingly as very suicidal, he is not suicidal. Although it comes across as contemptuous of creation, it is not a hatred of good things. It is a ordering of good things in perspective to the eternal good thing, which in his view is eternal life with Jesus Christ. Absolutely profound. I think that does shed a little bit of light on my discussion about Mike Staley and the challenge that he he made the statement, I was not afraid of dying, I was afraid of not living. And I, I think that is really one of the challenges that we can get so fixated on this life. We can get so fixated on the good things of this life that we don't keep them within eternal perspective. Let me ask you a question. How many of you think it's sane and healthy to go running into a burning building? How many of you think it's sane and healthy to go running into a gunfight? To go running into a facility that was bombed? To go amongst the sickest COVID patients? and to care for them. In a real sense, that is absurd, right? If, if all I cared about was the preservation of my physical health, aka life, and physically living, all of that's absurd. But yet, you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to believe in Jesus Christ. You don't really even have to believe in anything, and there are many people who work in these professions that do not have uh, any conception of a religious faith or religious belief system. They are average, you know, Joe Blow Americans. And yet they do these amazing things like run into burning buildings and run into gunfights. And we recognize the heroism that they demonstrate when they do this. And we realize they're crazy, but we don't call them crazy. And I ask you the question, why? And I, I think the response to that question is going to be, they see a greater good. Their heart, their mind, their perspective is fixed upon a greater good than the mere risk or the mere loss or the likelihood of loss or the certainty. Certain or the certitude of loss, the certainty of what we will sacrifice. This, I think, is a way of naturally explaining what would be brought up into the Christian faith. It, it is really a principle of wisdom, of putting all things in their order and in their proper perspective to the final end. This conception of Ignatius's desire to die is really a Christianization. It is a religious 
divinization. It is a bringing up into godly things, a spirit that is found amongst the people of the world. And for those who don't share my faith, who are curious about this show, curious about the perspective that I bring, and are curious about these things, I ask you, are they really that drastic? Are they really that out there? Is Ignatius really that crazy when we look at the heroes that we love and sometimes almost worship in our society? How many of you can recall the posters, the banners, heroes work here outside of this hospital? Especially in the first couple of months, there was hardly a person that did not love a cop, a fireman, a nurse, but especially the EMS professionals and the nurses because they were in the thick of it and the worst of it during COVID. Uh, Some law enforcement communities would take your reports over the phone if it was not a life-threatening 911 crime. Some fire departments would come out, but they could social distance. But the EMS professionals, the nurses, the doctors, the hospital staff, they didn't have a choice. If they showed up to work, they knew what they were putting at risk. And they did it. And they did it because they saw that the service of life and the preservation of life of others was as important or more important than their own. And Ignatius here in this epistle to the Romans that I've quoted briefly and gone over sees that the preservation of the life of God within him, the life of being a baptized Christian, as he says, there is a water within me, which is his way of referring to baptism and to participating in the Eucharistic Passover meal of the Lord's Supper. There is a profound recognition in him that that aspect of life was worth preserving regardless of the risk of being told no. Just as many people on the front lines in the past few years, and indeed in many different types of human crises over the past few centuries, would put other things first. I think of a family member of mine who died shortly before his 100th birthday. He is a true American hero. He was a Iron Man of Metz, served under General Patton in World War II and the invasion of Europe, was shot in the chest crossing the Moselle River by a Nazi stronghold, not just the German Wehrmacht army, but a group of uh, Einschussgruppen, a group of the SS of the Nazis that held the town. And the title Iron Men of Metz was a title of respect given by the Nazis to 95th Infantry 20 Corps that he was a member of because of how strong of a fighter they were. He got into a boat that fateful day of his. And it's really in a scene depicted very well in the movie Band of Brothers of trying to cross this little river. Um, Although Band of Brothers obviously was not in southern France at the time, but the imagery there is the same. Where he tried to cross this little little band as a ACO, as an Army Corps of Engineer um, tech sergeant. And out of the, the handful of men in his boat, he, uh, he took a machine gun round through the chest, took another one, got to the other side. And I asked him 
and, and it was shortly before his death. He had never told these things to my father or to uh, his brother or to anyone else in our family. He had shared this with me shortly before his death. And I asked him, how did, like, what did you do? You, you, he ended up losing a lung, lost ribs seven, eight, nine, um, almost died right there. I said, what did you do? He said, I got out of the boat. <laughs> I wasn't going to sit there. Um, and, and I asked him, I said, what about your friends? And he, you know, he confessed to me that it was too difficult for him to look back. And half of the men that he went across the, the river with did not get out of that boat. And he got up the, uh, halfway up the, the river bankment and, uh, took another round from a, a machine gun and finally collapsed at that point. And one of the, the medics on that side that were, were, were ministering to the group of, um, soldiers that had made it across in the, the multitude of boats. Hey, look, here's one I can save. And, you know, that was the end of his service, you know, but he, he realized where he was at and, uh, you know, he bore, and I'll get into maybe talking about him a little bit later as a real true American hero, uh, who would later go on to be one of the founding architects of the world of, uh, one of the first revolving restaurants at the top of a, uh, high tower building in the United States, you know, here's a man that would put it all on the line for the sake of a better world for the people that he uh, wanted for the people of Europe, for a better world of the Americans back home of his family that lived. So there, there is this natural perspective that recognizes that the price we pay and what we're willing to risk ultimately is an acceptable cost. And, the desire to die for Christ, the acceptance of death as a part of that, is really an acceptance of becoming the greatest of what it means to be a human being. To, in, in a certain sense, in a natural sense, participate in the saving life of God, in the self-sacrificing life of God. We are really, in a worldly way, imitating that amazing gift that Jesus Christ would give for us on the cross. This is your host, Christopher. If you like today's episode, give us a thumbs up and subscribe. Also click the bell for notifications on future content. If you haven't already, check out our website, theufcshow.com, ways that you can support us and find us on other platforms. Until next time.